You're listening to Tone Benders, the sound designer's podcast. Let's do this. Hey everybody, welcome to Tonebender Sound Design Podcast. I'm Tim Muirhead and I will be your host for today, but I am not alone as I have a real special guest, Wiley Stateman is with us. You are very familiar with his work because he's worked on the sound on at least half of your favorite films. From JFK to Inglorious Bastards, from Home Alone to Shrek, from The Perfect Storm to Natural Born Killers and the recent Tarantino film Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Wiley's films have covered pretty much all genres and all styles. He has eight Oscar nominations, Emmy nominations, and I literally got bored when trying to count up all of his MPSE Golden Reel nominations. I gave up when I got to 20. There's just too many to count. He's got so many. In addition to all of his achievements in sound, he's an entrepreneur, a studio owner, and is regularly breaking new ground in how Audio Post is done. Welcome to the show, Wiley. It's great to have you. Thank you, Timothy. Uh, it's really a pleasure to be here and to be speaking to your uh, Tone Benders audience. Sorry, there's a helicopter going overhead. We have fires in Southern California this time of year. And uh, my studio is in Topang Canyon, which is really out in the, the boondocks in the country. It seems to be in the flight path for the heavy lifting Huey uh, water drop helicopters. But the fires aren't near you? They get close, and they've, they've been really close. Um, but uh, a small price to pay for paradise. So. Well, that's a healthy <laughs> attitude, I guess. Yes, for sure. <laughs> Excellent. Well, listeners, if you want to go back to episode 111, we talked with Harry Cohen, Zach Goheen, and Leo Marcel about the sound work they did on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and we really dug into some of the kind of uh, technical details and such. Today, I'm hoping to talk to Wiley a bit more about uh, maybe some more esoteric ideas about sound for film and kind of go that direction since we already covered the technical stuff of the vehicle recordings and such like that. Wiley, you recently did the intro, the keynote, I guess, for the mix sound for film, and you talked about your idea, your goal to push something called the sound director. Can you give me a rough overview of that concept? Sure, Tim. My feeling after um, so many years sort of working professionally in this industry is that in order for us to get sort of more recognition and also the resources necessary to do this kind of work at the highest level, we have to kind of elevate our state in this business. And so the purpose of that keynote was to really put forward an idea that I call the sound DP or the sound DPD. And it's not the director of photography as a typical title uh, DP would sort of infer. It's really the idea that the sound department should have a director should have producers that are very familiar with how the intricacies of sound uh, would be affected by budgetary decisions. And it should be also the D, which stands for designer, so that the big picture in terms of sound, directing, producing, and designing can kind of come together on a department level uh, where it can be sort of realized in its, in its highest potential form, but also be paid for and be... Uh, be treated in, in, with a departmental respect that you see on the production set and in, in, in production in general uh, at the department level. The idea was to really talk about these three positions. And uh, the sound director is really somebody that has a very holistic view. It begins uh, in pre-production. It's somebody who does the script breakdown, but then breaks that into ideas. Um, when you're looking at a script and comparing that to the shooting schedule, there's all kinds of interesting information that you can sort of derive from that in terms of sound. 
And in terms of sound, you want to know when there are extras working, when the visual effects departments are working, and you really want to basically take the, the plan apart. Uh, the script is the plan, but you want to take that plan apart with an eye towards how it relates to sound. The second role in that is the sound producer, and you want to understand, I think, what the potential cost is for these things whether it's the real cost of a team working an hour, a day, a week, a month, or the real cost of how many weeks the production will be rolling and what kind of coverage will be both in production and then in early post and later in post, of course, at the, at the mixing points and, and all the way through deliverables and, and out into international localization. The producing role, as seen through the eyes of somebody solely interested in sound, is really quite an important component that's been missing from most productions of the last, you know, maybe 30 years. In the 60s, they had sound directors. Today, we have uh, largely uh, vendors who provide these kinds of services or studios that have departments. The industry is ripe for change, you know, change from the top, change from the decision-making, uh, the planning uh, chairs. So. And again, the third thing being the sound designer, which is integral to the uh, success and the exploration of sound uh, throughout the creation of any form of content. And uh, that'll be uh, uh, what I hope we spend the remainder of this conversation uh, <laughs> discussing, because I, I really believe in the creative aspects of, uh, of what sound brings to the experience. And I think something that's really worthy uh, a departmental uh, high-level recognition. Well, something that I think you're known for, uh, I'm not even sure if you're aware that you're known for, but you have a knack for bringing a tone to a film. Uh, some people might call it a vibe. Some people might call it the feel of a film. But your films tend to have a coherent audio voice throughout the film. But what I always am amazed by is your films are always so different. So if you take a film like Lone Survivor, and you put it up against Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Like, these films are so different, or even Kill Bill, Lone Survivor and Kill Bill are both action films, but they sound totally different. Like, how do you go about finding the voice of each film? That's a great question, you know, Tim, because I think what drives us into this type of profession is that we generally have a love for sound. And that love comes from many different directions. It comes from a love of the engineering side of things or a love of music or other creative aspects of sound. For me, I came at this being sort of a slow learner in the academic sense and severely dyslexic. So for me, in order to learn about something, I had to see a very big picture. And in terms of sound, the big picture is the sort of novel core that every script, you know, sort of speaks. And so you sort of outline some very different films, and I'm very proud to have worked extensively for just a handful of directors, mostly writer, director, producer types. Um, but the novel core of their body of work is really what I strive to help them achieve. So I look at a film and a filmmaker and a script and I try and see it as a unique opportunity to sort of reinvent something for that particular filmmaker and to sort of objectify the sound based on their uh, style and their sensibility. In terms of uh, the question that you ask, um, I think that working in sound professionally affords 
people the chance to sort of rediscover things and then kind of explore them each on a very sort of individual and novel basis. So when you're going to start on a new project, how early are you getting involved in trying to think of this new, we'll call it tone for a film? Is it when you first see a cut? Or when you get a script, like how, where does your brain go to try and narrow this down? I start with the script and I, I start by reading the script literally line by line over and over again. So if a script is for a two hour film, it probably takes me five times real time to do my first pass read. And in that process, I try and really understand every word of the script and make um, pretty extensive notes. On a 120-page script, I might have 50 or 60 pages of notes. And those kind of notes are sort of inspired by locations that are described in the script, um, times of day or moods, uh, but also uh, of what I call the action. So uh, what I'll do is do a, um, an outline of the script without the dialogue, but just the action beats, and then try and understand sort of the story arc. Where does, you know, where are we developing character? Where are we uh, delivering exposition? And how are we going to do that in terms of sound? So the, the process begins with the script. Um, I then refer to the shooting schedule and see how they plan to, you know, accomplish the principal photography. And then it's working closely with the film editor. You know, the post-production process should start on the first day of, or the second day of production. So as the film editor puts the first two shots together, somebody should be thinking about the sound. And it's not just uh, solving problems in terms of noise on the set. It's really about story and flow and, uh, I think it's a great um, advantage for film editors to have a, a sound designer thinking about continuity or discontinuity, thinking about music, and performing alongside of them in the cutting room, uh, a function that could be handled by an assistant film editor, but is better handled, I think, by a really competent sound designer. So in our previous interview with uh, Leo, Harry, and Zach, Leo played the role of uh, sitting in with the picture editorial on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. When did you start having someone sit in with the picture at team? I, I've been uh, very lucky to work, as I said, with mostly uh, writer, director, and producer types. So starting early is, for me, a, a, a mental process more than a physical process. Leo Marcel physically moved into the cutting room somewhere around the fifth week of post-production, but we were working sort of in my studio in Topanga alongside of the production throughout the shooting process. The beauty of, of Quentin's films is that he really thinks in terms of, of sound, and he really uses sound as a, an integral part of his thought process and, and an integral part of how he blocks out ideas and, and conceives of, of scenes photographically. So we build um, playback tracks, we prepare um, sound effects, even as early as for dailies uh, on Quentin's projects. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was <laughs> directed by Quentin Tarantino, but very much uh, orchestrated by Fred Raskin, the film editor. And uh, Fred uh, and I have worked together on a number of films. 
I really treasure that process with him and, and support his needs throughout the shooting process. So Leo moved a little later in the process to the cutting room. It was really so that he could do these uh, rapid prototypes of scenes and treat some of the Futz music and some of the film itself with a, a layer of ideas that helped Fred decide cutting patterns. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was an example of how we practice this rapid prototyping um, process uh, that we use for sound uh, on Quentin's films. Historically, the Avid was a, a, a proxy for what the final picture and the final sound uh, might uh, look and feel like. With a rapid prototyping mindset, we try and get music standing up, sound effects standing up, dialogue smoothed out and consistent as early as possible so that cutting patterns can be not only established but finalized uh, to some extent as early as possible in the cutting room uh, during the intensive decision-making period when we're thinking about beats and rhythms and timing and pacing. Rapid prototyping, I think, is uh, a very strong way to move through post-production in a productive way where you're not ever really having to make excuses. And Can you just elaborate quickly, when you say rapid prototyping, just explain that a little bit further. The sound design and um, the overall design of the soundtrack is brought to a level that is almost at a final level quality. It's still very, very important to conduct a final mix and not to short shift what that contribution brings to the process. But I would say that the Avid is no longer a proxy for the final release. It is work in progress and a continuing what we call rolling mix, um, which is just a continuing uh, prototyping of the final process early in the cutting uh, phase. Shortening the process isn't really the goal. Improving the process and lifting the creative uh, elements uh, to where they uh, can be uh, easily approved and, and presented and, and uh, where they sort of coalesce around the cut at the time that the cut really needs that sort of thing is really the, the mission here. So as far as, as saving time or saving money, it's not really seen necessarily in, in that uh, regard. It's seen more as a tremendous asset in the decision-making process and in the creative process. And uh, overall, I think it really um, supports the approval process. So when did you first start embedding sound people in with the picture edit? It feels like this has always been a part of my thought process. And the actual timeline as to when we started doing this is probably when I first started creating uh, sound for filmmakers who cared. Um, pretty much with all of the filmmakers that I've worked with in my career, we have, uh, you know, generated some level of respect for the sound process and some level of appreciation for when that process should be applied. And for most filmmakers, uh, particularly writer, director type filmmakers, they think about sound as they're writing the script. So why not introduce sound as a, a creative contribution as early as, as potentially possible or as, as relevantly possible. So 
there's often an opportunity to make things for the production that they might need on the set. There's a wonderful opportunity to work with production mixers. Mark Ulano, uh, in particular, is a very collaborative uh, soulmate. You know, I consider on Quentin's films that uh, between Mark Ulano and and Mike Minkler and myself that we're we sort of operate uh, an audio collective, <laughs> where collectively we all have this knowledge and experience and a willingness to to share and contribute and a fearless sense of, of our own value in the process, that uh, we get together, we talk about these things, we uh, solve problems for one another. At the end, and or at the beginning, we have tremendous respect uh, for one another's contributions, and, and they're enormous. I mean, I'm sorry, there's another jet going by. I can <laughs> hear that sounds one. Sounds like, like a private, uh, yeah, high-performance jet, so. One of the things I like uh, hearing from you is the idea of actually real communication with the production mixer. Because mm-hmm. we have so many uh, production mixers that we've had on as guests or that we talk to, and they're just like, uh, I've never even spoken to the dialogue editor or the post supervisor. Like, it, there's no communication at all. They do their job, there's a fine line, and then it gets dumped off on the next stage. So it's always good to hear that communication is happening. Absolutely. You know, uh, good communication between departments is essential. The role of the supervising sound editor without a collaboration with uh, production mixers would be a miss. So some of my long-term friendships in this industry have been with production mixers and, of course, re-recording mixers. And, of course, sound designers and sound editors, for that matter. That's why I think uh, I refer to it as a, as an audio collective, because it takes people who are highly skilled in these disciplines to come together and work together. So you've talked a lot about your recurring working relationship with directors. It seems like once a director has worked with you, they want to work with you again. What do you think that you're providing that is bringing them back? I think that directors are quite needy when it comes to having a collaborative experience with their department heads. I've always marveled at the relationship between director and editor, between director and uh, cinematographer, and often director and production designer and costumer. And and I wanted desperately to um, help the sound department sort of uh, enjoy that same kind of collaborative relationship. So as I would tell my children, uh, if you want to have good friends, you need to learn how to be a good friend. And uh, that's why um, I believe that when a director engages with me in a conversation, they really want to understand my opinion in terms of sound. So that's a big part of how I try and communicate with these people. And it's a big part of, I think, what can endear somebody to um, a creative artist. So uh, the discipline necessary to write is very different than film. And the discipline necessary to contribute the greatest potential of sound is uh, also that of a unique view of the world and usually a unique individual that wants to really focus on that. Uh, Directors come to me to really understand the sound, and that's the role I play. And I try and consistently engage them in conversations that 
brings a very sharp point to what sound might contribute to their creative thoughts and process. So let's tie that to something that you spoke about earlier. We were talking earlier about tone and you said how you go through the script for hours and you take extensive notes. Are you then going to the director with those notes? The first person I generally share my notes with is the editor. The reason for that is that I want to, one, give sort of a benchmark to sound in terms of a strategy as it relates to the script, but two, to coordinate our efforts so that we're both talking about the film from a a somewhat similar point of view. So my notes are broken down in scene form and, well, first in page form from the script and then in scene form from the shooting script and, and or shooting schedule. It's a wonderful thing, I think, to share with a film editor that benchmark and that understanding. And then they can give me notes that um, work into a working heat map of how the pieces will come together. It's very important to... Um, communicate with the editor on a level uh, where you're giving them greater clarity. Uh, It's used as the basis of a vocabulary that post-production can have, and that can be applied to what our expectations are from the production. So once you've got this language with the editor and I guess the director as well, how do you then communicate that to your team? That's very important. You know, collaboration is really the heart of any strategy in post-production. And so with my team, we break things down into also sort of spreadsheet type things where they become to-do lists almost. And they become sort of uh, the backbone of, a let's say, a library poll. So we might first look for what we have uh, on, on record uh, or file or as samples, you know. <laughs> Um, But to do that and do it in sort of an organized way against a master list. And that master list becomes kind of a a heat map as to where we are. Are we right up with the needs of production? Are we uh, ahead of them? Are we behind them? Documentation is a wonderful form of collaboration. Uh, It's just one form of collaboration, but it gives us a very visual sense of um, where we stand in terms of time and in, in terms of the budget. As the supervising sound editor, what percentage of your time is spent actually cutting sounds these days? There's two important methods. One is called ABC, always be cutting. And the other is called ABM, always be mixing. So somewhere at some time, you know, there are people cutting and mixing. As far as the supervising sound editor doing that cutting, uh, there are many gifted supervising sound editors that find it relaxing to do that sort of work. For myself personally, and at this point in my life, I would prefer to work with and collaborate with editors that are really proficient uh, on Pro Tools and with plugins and that, you know, are really up to date with uh, the latest techniques to work with them directly and, um, and just maintain the big picture. I believe in uh, ABL, Always be listening. <laughs> uh, when you're working with Harry Cohn and he's cutting sounds, how often are you checking in on him? We, uh, we talk daily. Harry and I have had so many wonderful years working together. Um, he has a home studio that's really ideal for the type of person he is and the style to which he's uh, grown accustomed and loves to work. I have my home studio, which is uh, an Atmos room built 
around a design that a friend from Dolby uh, laid out for me. My Atmos home studio has um, Meyer Asheron speakers in the front, 28 dual HABLs in the ceiling, an S6, you know, 32 fader, nine knob desk. It's really capable of mounting even the most extensive mixes. But in terms of, of how we communicate and we're always trading ideas back and forth. We're always conscious of, of what's going on and where we're at and, and what's being developed. So often in terms of my crew on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, there were things that could be accomplished within uh, minutes or hours or things that required um, days. And I'm very conscious of the fact that creative people need time to be creative. Uh, and that time while always isn't ideal or, you know, in, in excess of, of what they want, um, there is a, a real need to communicate so that we can collectively sort of understand the mission and deliver on the promises that we make with the calendar, with the creative expectations and the budget. To kind of further extrapolate on that, can we maybe take a scene from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and talk about how you broke it down for your team, maybe how you talked with the editor and director about it. Let's talk about the scene where uh, Brad Pitt's character arrives at the ranch. So the most of the rest of the film has music playing on radios or TVs, lots of source music. He gets out of that car, all of a sudden we're in the desert and the film has a bit of a different tone. See if you could break that down a bit for how you decided to tackle that. Uh, the Spawn Ranch is an excellent example of where Quentin decided that a song wouldn't be appropriate. He didn't want to uh, express the kind of evil that he imagined was part of the tone of Spawn Ranch as music. And so he offered that to us uh, as an opportunity to do a rather large amount of time with just sound design elements. So. The Spawn Ranch uh, was a great example of where, you know, Harry did some really interesting tonal stuff. Uh, Zach uh, Goheen took recordings that were made out in Death Valley of, of squeaking things and air motors and, and things that he found in that practical location. And he sort of kind of tortured them into um, interesting textures for the backgrounds. Sylvain Lessieux did uh, with the Kima Pecorina certain combinations of the two, bringing together, you know, elements that were based on wind and nature, but sort of morphing those things in and out of the elements that Harry and Zach were also providing. So that's an excellent example of a scene that really required um, a lot of thought and a lot of time and uh, ultimately stands as a beautiful sound design um, moment in the film. You know, Brad Pitt does a very long walk up to George Spawn's house, and that is accompanied by pure dramatic sound design. The walk up, the extensive dialogue scene in, inside George Spawn's house, and then, of course, the walk out and the the conflict with the Manson family before his exit. It's a very important part of the film, and it was really a challenge to uh, get that as precise as it is uh, with just sound design elements and Foley. Gary Hecker did the Foley along with Leo uh, Marcel. That, too, contributes a very sort of precise and upfront layer to the track. You know, the interesting thing about uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is that 
we have the opportunity to work on long sort of uh, developing sequences in terms of sound. And then we have the opportunity to do very short and very percussive and very dynamic uh, action moments. So one of my favorites is uh, the two trailer scenes. You have uh, Brad Pitt, who plays the character uh, Cliff Booth, you know, going home to his trailer and feeding his dog and kind of shaking off the end of a day. And all of that is very precise and it's done with TV playback and it's done with environmental textures and an offstage uh, drive-in movie. And it's a very interesting sound design opportunity. And then you have, you know, Rick Dalton, you know, having a nervous breakdown in a trailer, which was somewhat reminiscent of Kill Bill Volume 2 and the Daryl Hannah fight with Uma Thurman. Uh, they have a sword fight in a very narrow place and it's a very interesting and very well choreographed scene, both visually and, and sound-wise. With Quentin, when we go into a small space like that, he is really um, conscious of the high detail possibilities of having the audience sort of perceive things in and around uh, such a tight space. So. Quentin is very much interested in, in punctuating his, uh, his action, his comedy, and the drama of his films through the use of very plosive and clever sound design. I want to just go back to the Spawn Ranch scene real quick. Sure. When you started working on it and you had Zach cutting in these uh, Death Valley sounds that he recorded, did he come up with that on his own or did you point him that direction? And when the chemo was being used to blend stuff, was that something that Sylvan did on his own? I work very closely with the sound effects designers and each of the areas that you're describing are sort of a conversation that we have through audio and through their art, you know, so each individual will have the responsibility to sketch and to present and to attempt to bring together elements that deliver on the, the, the overall promise of what sound might deliver for that particular moment. But I'm very much involved in coalescing all that and refining it and providing sometimes the first, second, and third layer of notes in that refining process. It's a really collaborative effort. It's a very sort of uh, intimate experience that you have. And uh, often as sound effects designers, people tend to um, move in a direction that they feel most comfortable, whether it's with a certain tool or a certain uh, pull from the library uh, that's completely theirs um, in its origin. But at the end of the day, uh, it's a collaborative art, and I bring to that uh, collaboration a, a layer of oversight, and then that layer uh, is, is further refined by editor uh, Fred Raskin and uh, ultimately director Quentin Tarantino. Just got one last question for you. Thank you very much for taking all this time to talk with us today. Sure. This is something I like to ask all the sound supervisors. Are you the kind of sound supervisor that during the final mix pass... Are you sitting at the back of the room waiting for a moment to uh, jump in and make a suggestion, or are you right up front telling them what you want up and what you want down when? I consider my role uh, right up front. And I consider for most of the clients that I work with, uh, they want me to take what could be a thousand decisions that would flow to them and reduce it to maybe a hundred or ten that are meaningful to the film. And so directors are often overwhelmed by the sheer number of decisions that they have to make in the lifespan of their movie. 
editors are often in the same boat. And so my sense of what a sound supervisor should be and do is to be right there, right at the, at the front of the room and ahead of the decisions that need to be made throughout the process of editing, mixing, and then ultimately uh, delivering a final track and uh, oftentimes moving even into the localization of that track into other languages. So I take a very holistic view of sound and feel that it's uh, quite necessary to play a very upfront role in the management of that process. It's always interesting to hear how the different sound supervisors uh, look at their role in the final mix stage. There's a wonderful book by David Mamet called Writing in Restaurants. He tries to explain first how collaborative filmmaking is, but then really how important it is to make decisions and to be in charge of that area of the process that you've been given charge. And so I really believe that the supervising sound editor is an old title and that what we're moving to is really the sound director, the sound producer, and the sound designer. And whether you're a production mixer and you want those responsibilities, whether you're a supervising sound editor and want those responsibilities, or a sound designer and want those responsibilities, or a re-recording mixer that wants those responsibilities. Those are real responsibilities, and uh, it takes knowledge, it takes uh, courage, and it takes commitment to fill those big shoes. Thank you very much. My pleasure, Timothy. Really good work on Tone Benders, and an absolute pleasure to be a part of your podcast. Have a great day. Take care, Timothy. Bye-bye. Tone Benders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. 